Well, thank you for the privilege of being with you for these weeks. In some ways, I know as your pastor gets back next week, you're going to be thrilled for that, but I'm going to be sitting in my driveway with the car on thinking, I'm not driving three hours to get down there. I want to be there. So if we show up next week just for fun, then, you know, that may be the case. So (laughs) listen, you all are like extended family and you know, there's an extended family and close family. Extended family are the ones that you can't wait to be with. And it's always a party. It's the close family that you think, oh, no, they're coming over. And, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of attention and exhaustion and preparation. But with extended family, it's just an endless party. And that's how we feel whenever we get together with you all. So thank you for the joy. And I don't know if uh, your pastor is a hugger, but make sure next week you give him a hug and tell him how thankful you are to see him back. I know that he has been praying for you and eager to get back in the pulpit and back to seeing your faces and part of the ebb and flow of weekly ministry. If you do have your copy of God's Word, please open it to Philippians chapter 4. Now, your bulletin says God's promise of strength, and that is correct in terms of what I sent to Pamela's, but I'm changing it. We're looking at God's promise of peace, and the reason is because as I was studying Philippians 4, the passage kept drawing me towards verses 6 and 7 like a magnet, and I had to go there like a deer goes to water. And that's where I just kept getting stuck. And I couldn't get past verse 6 and 7 as I was studying for the later portion of the chapter. And so we're going to look at God's promise of peace. Over the last couple of weeks, we looked at God's promise to provide and his presence with us in Hebrews chapter 13. We looked at God's power from the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now this morning, we're going to look at God's promise of peace in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. It says this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now we are in that season when the school year begins For some in the room, that's dread, and for others, that's elation, right? Students dread, parents are elated. There's nervousness, there's excitement. Some are ecstatic over this, some are worried, and some are quite confident. Now, all of us who have surpassed the 12th grade can remember that first day of school experience, and you may remember going down to Kmart or Payless Shoe Store and getting that nice brand new pair of sneakers and New socks, and you load up your backpack with all your number two pencils and the infamous Trapper Keeper. Did anyone else have one of those? And you button that thing up, and you load your backpack up. You had your Incredible Hulk lunchbox, and you walked into school the first day. You were ready to go. You found out where your seat was and hoped it was near someone you knew, or at least someone that smiled nicely and wasn't too offensive. And your teacher began to give out the list of rules, and off you went. I remember one teacher, my first year of school in his class, he would open a Twinkie every year and set it onto the shelf next to the ones from the previous years. And by the time I got to his class, he was on about year 15. And the first Twinkie looked pretty much just like the last Twinkie. (laughs) A lot of good memories come back when I think about my kids starting their first day of school. And while I hope they don't have the Twinkie experience, I know they're going to have a world of other experiences. One of my favorite things to learn in school was the if-then equation. I love geometry. Geometry class was one of my favorites. 
and learning if-then equations, causation. If you do this, then something's going to happen. Hypothesis or assumptions that are made, conclusions that are drawn. If A, then B. You remember these things from school? Conditions that make up A are the assumptions we make. Conditions that make up B are the conclusions we hope to receive. And we have our list of assumptions, and we do some work to then prove our conclusions. For us to confidently say that we will get B means that we have to apply and implement everything in A. And if we leave off some of the things in A, then we're going to get a different outcome than B. And that's the way the if-then equations are structured and designed to work. And I frankly think it's a lot of fun. And if you are interested in those kind of things, you're going to find this passage even more compelling. Because Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 is an if-then equation. If verse 6, then verse 7. If I am anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let my request be made known to God, then the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I cannot get the then if I don't have the if. I cannot count on the promise of verse 7 if I don't have the practice of verse 6. And so while this is a promise of God, Unlike some of the others, some of the other promises that we looked at, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 particularly, that's a promise that God says and he gives to us regardless of how we are feeling or acting. He says, I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And that promise that God makes to us is one that's not contingent upon our attitude or actions. He's always with us and will never forsake us. But this promise is a little different. This promise has action on our part. And if we fail, then the promise is not there. But if we do what God tells us to do, if we are obedient, then the promise is there all the time. So let's look at this equation. In the first part, we look at the conditions. We look at the conditions in verse 6 and then the conclusions in verse 7. What are the conditions of receiving this promise? Well, first he says... To resist anxiety. Verse 6 begins by saying, be anxious for nothing. Now, when I read those words, you think that's a very big statement. Don't worry about anything. You've heard someone say that to you. Maybe you're in the midst of a world worth of worry. And someone comes along and just almost cavalierly says, don't worry about anything. And you think, you have no idea what I'm going through. How can you say that? Well, just before we think that way, glance back to Philippians chapter 1. And what you see is Paul writing to a group of people from prison. Paul's not writing from a position of of ease and tranquility. Paul's not writing to a group of people who he is not experiencing worse trouble than they're experiencing. In fact, Paul's writing from an incredibly complex situation. Verse 7 of chapter 1 says, For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. He says on down further, verse 13, he says, In my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Verse 14 says, my imprisonment. And he continues to state this over and over again. Verse 17, my imprisonment. He's talking about where he is and what he's writing from. 
This is not a position of ease and comfort. Paul's writing from a position of being under indictment for false charges. He knows slander. He knows accusations. He knows betrayal. He knows the evil vileness of this world. And in all of that context of people assaulting him externally, he then says that there are even some, verse 17 says, who proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause him distress in his imprisonment. Not only is the unbelieving world out there attacking Paul, but so are other so-called Christians who are making sport out of the gospel, who are using their own ability to teach simply for the sake of personal gain, selfish ambition. And Paul says all that compounded together is crushing me. And this is a man who understands grief, betrayal, weakness, his own limitations. He's not writing from a place of abundance and wealth, prosperity. He's writing from a place of imprisonment a place of condemnation, a place of being despised. And so he's writing words that he's well familiar with. But experience doesn't mean that it's valid for him to speak this way. You don't have to have the world's worst experience to look at someone and say, do not be anxious. Because it's the words of God who's speaking this. In fact, Paul, look at chapter 2 of Philippians. This is interesting as well. Chapter 2 gives us this well-known section where it talks about Christ who leaves heaven and comes to earth, takes on the form of a slave, is then assaulted in all the ways that Scripture defines, particularly Isaiah 53, becomes obedient, as verse 8 says, humbled to the point of death, even death on the cross. That there's a narrative here that while humans take on a certain measure of oppression, a certain measure of condemnation, grief, and all the evilness of the world we got to contend with there's another layer of supernatural evil that's launched against christ that he endures on our behalf of course as we know the chapter continues and it talks about christ being exalted above everything and paul says in verse 14 of chapter 2 do all things without grumbling or disputing that there's a name of christ that's on display in our character and our attitude and our actions reflect him And what we do is directly proclaiming a gospel message to others simply by the way we refuse to complain or dispute. There's a sacrifice that's then illustrated in Timothy and Epaphroditus as those two men are drawn to attention here. In fact, Epaphroditus, him, that he worked in such a way that even sacrificed his own body nearly to the point of death, as verse 30 says of chapter 2. All that Paul is doing here is building this narrative that oppression, that difficulties, that trials are just part of life. In fact, look at chapter 3, verse 7. After explaining his own spiritual resume, he says, verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. He says, even my own resume is irrelevant. I don't even have anything that makes me stand out or victorious or special or unique or worthy of exaltation on this earth? He says, I've got nothing. I have nothing. He says, all I can do, verse 14, is I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ. If you jump down then to verse four, chapter 4, Paul begins then to look around and 
point out people who have been tremendous in ministry with him, particularly a group of women who have served alongside him. He says, verse 3, these are true companions. He says, I ask that you help these women who shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These are people, these are precious women who have served relentlessly, who have borne the difficulties along with him and not to be forgotten. Verse 4, chapter 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I mean, this is an exaltation statement where it's a thrill. And then almost immediately afterwards, he then says, be anxious for nothing. And I point out all of that for us to see this, this apparent dichotomy where on one hand, his heart is in heaven, but yet his body is anchored to earth. His mind is filled with all this knowledge of Christ and his exaltation and the joy of ministry and the excitement of seeing people's lives change. But yet there's also a grief that runs through him as he's dealing with the perils of life in a fallen world. So anxiety is nothing new to Paul. It's nothing new to Paphroditus, to Timothy, to any of the women mentioned in chapter 4, verse 4. It's a normal thing. In fact, when you look throughout the scripture, you see many illustrations of people who wrestled deeply with the worries of this world. I praise God that he put those in there because we need to see that side. It's David who said in Psalm 42, 11, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Why so torn up within me? Many other examples we could go to from Job to Elijah to Naomi, Jeremiah. What we see is an anxiety that runs through human veins. And here the mind of God through the, the pen of Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Everything that concerns us is under God's control. We have no reason to worry. And our worry cannot change the outcome. The scripture says, can worry even add an hour to our life? Can worry extend our life in any way? cannot but there's an action to take and so the first relates to our emotions and letting our mind control our attitudes and letting our thoughts run away down a track that has no good outcome he's saying control your heart control your thoughts control your mind don't be anxious about those things but in its place here's what we are to do when the seeds of worry start to grow we immediately exterminate them in its place we put this and here's what we're to do not only do we Resist anxiety, but we then race to prayer. Race to prayer. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now that portion of this verse is just explosive because you got to think through who you're talking to. It's not saying bring your request to the wealthiest person on earth, bring your request to the most powerful individual on earth. It's bring what concerns you to the ears of the one who created you. Bring what causes worry in your heart to the one who's the authority over everything in the universe. What's implied and what's obvious is the access. The fact that we have access to him. The fact that we have an open door, a listening ear, a willingness to hear, unrestrained no limitation, no time cap, nothing that stops this from taking place. No preset conditions. Just the statement that says, if it worries you, take it to him. If it worries you, take it to him. That tells us our reflex, 
our spring-loaded reflex when worry starts needs to immediately vault us into prayer. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing. 1 Peter 5.7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The moment the anxiety, the fear, the worry starts to develop is the very second, the very moment when prayer needs to begin. Not a phone call to a friend, not eruption of tears or a gallon of ice cream consumed. It's immediate, instantaneous prayer. Simply race to prayer. That's the pattern of Jesus. I mean, over and over again, Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, Mark 6, 46, Luke 6, 12, Mark 1, 35, Luke 5, 16. Over and over again, Scripture says Jesus went to pray. Jesus left what he was doing. He left who he was with, and he went away to pray. That's the example of our Savior. And he didn't just simply sit there in the moment of prayer. He left to go pray. He made a special time out of that to separate from the the distractions in front of him, from the people in front of him, remove himself to simply go and pray. Back to the verse, verse 6 says, in everything by prayer and supplication. Supplication is our request. That's our petitions. That's what we're needing. That's what we're hungering for. That's what we're asking for. We're presenting a situation where I don't know the outcome. All I know are the things I see and I say, God, here's what I have. Here's the ingredients. Here's the people involved. Here's the circumstances I can't figure out what to do with. Here's the the stuff I can't unscramble. I can't resolve this. All I know is here's the situation and I need you. As James 1 says, if we ask for wisdom, he'll give it. And we pour out our hearts before him. That solves, that cures, that lessens anxiety. It dissipates anxiety when I know that I have a merciful Savior. I have an authoritative King. I have the Lord of all creation whose ear is listening to my requests, who knows the entire circumstance without any mutation of anything, without anything being disrupted or hidden from his sight. He knows the entirety of it. And he tells us by prayer and supplication. But then he says, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You say, why thanksgiving? You see, it's easy for us to get on a string of things we need and things we're craving and hungering for without pausing to remember that thank you, God, for the breath to breathe. Thank you, God, for the life I'm living. Thank you for the ability to wake up and even get myself upright and start the day again. There's a pause that needs to come across us in anxiety and worried-filled moments where we start to count the blessings God has given us. This is not a blind optimism that says we're just going to figure out how to wring some lemonade out of all these lemons. This is us saying to God, you have given us grace. Even in the midst of the trial, there is still grace abundantly, lavishly overflowing. Don't miss the grace he's put in the middle of the situation. Even saying, thank you, God, that we can go to you in prayer. Thank you that we can open your word and read it. Thank you that I have an infinite source of wisdom right here. But you know what? While you are praying this type of prayer, remember this. You're not the only one praying. You are not the only one praying. Hebrews 7, 25, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
Romans 8, 34. It's Jesus Christ who's at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. You are on your knees and sometimes on your face and sometimes out of weakness, can't even mutter a full sentence, just in grief, agonizing, praying for something, pouring out your request before God. And alongside your prayers is Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, also interceding for us. You see how beautiful that is? It's that while I pray with the limited vocabulary and thoughts I have, alongside that I have the creator of the universe also interceding. I have the one who gave his life for us also interceding. And with my prayers and the petitions of Jesus come before the Father, he hears our prayers. This is the publican in the temple saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's the Syrophoenician woman who says, Lord, help me. It's Peter who cries out, Lord, save me or I perish. It's Stephen who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's David who says, oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. That's what should be our reaction. That should be the instinct. The worry starts and the prayer takes over and sweeps us away into a relationship and a conversation with our God and Father. But let's pause for just a second there and let's drill in a little bit deeper and say, what stops us from doing that? What is it that stops us? So theologically, we know anxiety starts, anxiousness starts, worry starts, I'm supposed to pray. Let's say, let's just... Look for a second and figure out why we don't do that. Let me give you a couple of possible reasons why. And you see maybe if some of these are true. One, you're looking for an audience. Some people wear their worry a lot like they wear poison ivy. They're just so covered in it and they can't wait to give you a hug and spread it all around. And they're not happy till everybody suffers with the poison ivy. Do you have a kid like that in your house? They get poison ivy and they don't just want to show it to you. They want you to experience it too. And so it gets passed around. Some people are like that with worry. They're not content until you are as worried and worked up and filled with drama as they are. And so why would I pray until I have a good audience to pray? Why would I pray until I've spread this all around so that we're all equally ratcheted up over it? That's pride. That's pride that doesn't go to God in prayer privately before you have an audience publicly. In fact, it's Matthew 6 where Christ says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. What they wanted was an audience and what they got is an audience, not with God, but with man. And sometimes with our worry, long before we think about taking it to God immediately in prayer, we take it to someone else and we want their attention. We want the drama to spread. We want their pity. We want their affection or affirmation. Instead, what Christ says is when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. It's that simple. It means go to God in prayer. Start there. Pray where only God sees. Go where no one's looking, where no one would suspect, where no one's attention is drawn to you, and simply pour out your heart before our king 
Start there. The second thing that sometimes stops us is we're looking for an easy way out. I'm not looking to pray. I'm looking to end this. I'm looking to stop this. I'm looking for a way to escape. And so rather than pray about it, we start to strategize. And yet James chapter 4 verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. You're asking for God to do your will your way, not his will his way. Three times in Scripture, Christ prayed, your will be done. Matthew 6.10, Matthew 26.42, and Luke 22.42. Your will be done. You want to neutralize anxiety? It begins when we yield ourselves to the unfolding plan of God and we say, God, here's what I have, here's what I see, but I hold it all with an open hand and I'm going to trust you with the outcome. I'm not looking for an easy way out. I'm looking for the right thing to be done. And the right thing is your will. A third thing that may stop us from praying these kind of prayers are just simply thoughtless prayers. Thoughtless prayers. It's where you have a lot of statements strung together, but you don't know what they mean. You ever find yourself doing that in prayer where you've, you've prayed things and you've said things and maybe it's said in your family and you, you've heard your mom or your dad or a beloved friends say certain phrases and you repeat that phrase but you really have no idea what it means christ said this in matthew 6 verse 7 that when you're praying do not use meaningless repetition as the gentiles do for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words so do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask bottom line is be blunt in prayer i mean that's the point back to philippians chapter 4 is take it to god He already knows. He's omniscient. But he tells us to pray, to petition, to plead with him, to be blunt, to be humble, to be direct. We can be guilty of this where we think if we can filibuster God enough and just petition him with endless words, we'll get our way. But that's not the heart of this. Thoughtless prayer can stop us from praying the way that we can and should. Give you a fourth one, and it's unrepentant sin. When we have sin in our life that's part of all that anxiety and worry and we don't stop and ask forgiveness for that sin, when we don't stop and ask God to cleanse us from it and remove it from our life, when we don't take the steps to amputate it and get it out, we don't run from it, when that's the case, then we can't expect that the anxiety and the worry is going to go away. In fact, Psalm 66 verse 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I'm harboring sin in my life, then my prayers are not going to go anywhere. Proverbs 28 verse 9 says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Living in outright defiance of God makes a mockery of the access we have to him when I go to him in prayer. I can't expect him to give me relief from the worry, the anxiety, the fear, when the cause of that Worry, anxiety, and fear is my own sin. I'll give you another one. Unwillingness to forgive. Unwillingness to forgive. Am I willing to extend forgiveness to those who may be the source of my worry? Am I willing to extend forgiveness to those who might be agitating the fear in my life? 
Christ says this in Mark 11, verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. It's saying, how can I embrace the forgiveness of God if I'm not willing to extend that forgiveness to one another? Bitterness in my heart hinders my prayer, and I can't expect the... I cannot expect the flow of God's blessing to continue where I refuse to obey. An unwillingness to forgive will stop us from going to God in prayer. Men, I'll give you another one. Dishonoring your wife. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Show honor to the woman who as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. The anxiety, the worry, the fear in life that God says can be dealt with with prayer is hindered, husbands, when we are not living with our wife in an understanding and honoring way. When we're not showing her the grace that God shows to us, when we're not treating her as an equal in Christ before the throne of God as a mutual recipient of God's forgiveness and grace and inheritance in heaven. Be careful with her fears, her cares, her concerns, her weakness, honor her, as the scripture says, to show her dignity that she deserves as a fellow child of God. I'll give you a seventh one to consider, and this is the last one. Perhaps the problem that stops us from going to God in prayer immediately, as the text says, is a lack of faith. We doubt that the prayer is going to do anything. Maybe you even thought that. Maybe you even said it. That the reason you don't go to God in prayer is because you think, what good is it going to do? Well, James speaks a strong message against that. It says, James chapter 1, verse 5, that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He goes on to say, a double-minded man's unstable in all of his ways, that you're flipping back and forth, that there's no anchor, nothing that holds you steady because your mind is doubting that God's actually going to fulfill his promise to give wisdom to you in the time of need. Perhaps one of those things or two of those things or a combination of them are at work in your heart, and that stops you from simply seeing the anxiety, seeing the fear, the worry, and then immediately taking it to God in prayer. You say, well, then how can we develop this habit? Well, really, it's just two things. It's protected time and persistence with it. Protected time and persistence with it. Develop the habit of setting aside a protected time to pray. We get that from Jesus' life. Jesus made the habit of walking away from the busiest schedule, from the most intense relationships, all the difficulties that were going on, and simply saying, this is my time to pray. First Peter or First Thessalonians five verse seventeen says, "Pray without ceasing." That's the idea of doing two things at once. You do whatever else you have to do, but at the same time, there's an ongoing conversation in your mind be- between you and God. The magnetic north in your life is prayer. When the, all the busyness and distractions stop, your mind goes right back to praying. That there's a consistency about you that's woven into the practice of every component of life. It's a regular occurrence. It's part of what we do. And a persistence about you that says, this is my relationship. One pastor said the spiritual life is a lot like breathing. You inhale scripture and exhale prayer. That we inhale the word of God and we exhale prayer. That's the believer's respiratory system. 
Well, if that's the if part of this, if we do verse 6, if we are anxious for nothing, and if we are taking our requests and our supplications with thanksgiving to God in prayer, then what do we get? Well, that's verse 7. Let's look at the conclusions. What do we get out of this? What happens? Then it says, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, that's the promise we have, that God promises us his peace when these things are so. Peace is such a desirable thing today, isn't it? Just peace from noise, peace from pressure, peace from worry, peace from fear, peace from conflict. In fact, advertising hinges on the idea of selling peace. Have you noticed this? Every earphone commercial in the world is centered around separation. Put these on and you get your own little atmosphere. It could be peace from whatever noise is erupting around you, protecting you from it. Even chocolate is marketed that way, right? You see those commercials? Eat this chocolate and you get a moment of undistracted deliverance from chaos. Remember the radio ad a few years ago, a number of years ago about promising a certain dialogue that you could have with the most disruptive, angry teenager and it'll restore peace in your home. I mean, that guy made a fortune off of simply selling the idea that if you listen to the CD or whatever it was, maybe a tape, it may be that old, that you could have peace in your home. One of the latest crazes is these little personal cocoons. It folds up in the size of a backpack or a briefcase and you unzip it and poof, this thing pops up, you crawl in, zip it up, and it's a little personal blackout space. Someone in the room may own one. All about getting peace. One friend of mine told me on this subject, I asked, we asked him what peace was, and he says, peace is what you find when the kids are gone, the bills are paid, and the dog is dead. <laughs> no worries, no annoyance, no antagonist, no conflict, just harmony and melody in everything. And you know, anyone in the world could have that kind of peace. But that's not the kind of peace that God promises. The peace that God promises is entirely supernatural. I mean, the word peace is basically the word for everything in order, everything having a place. I don't know if you have that experience where you walk into a room and it's a total disaster. It's a mess. There's clothes everywhere. There's dirty dishes. There's scraps of paper. There's tangled charging cables. Like nothing is orderly. And what do you do? You walk in and you say, ah, I'm home. Right? No, you're weird if you do. Peace is having everything in its proper place. And spiritually, that's what it means. Your world is not at peace if it's reigned by chaos where you've got disaster everywhere. Spiritually, nothing's in the right category. The priorities are not in the right order. And what will give you his peace? Everything in order. One author said that peace is a deep, settled confidence that all is well between the soul and God because of his loving, sovereign control of one's life, both in time and eternity. That calm assurance is based on the knowledge that sins are forgiven, blessing is present, good is abundant, even in trouble, and heaven is ahead. 
we have that promise of peace because of Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and, and 20, which says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in, body, in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That we have peace. We have everything in our life spiritually organized because of what Christ did on the cross. Christ is our peace. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are at peace with God because of what Christ has done. He paid the penalty for our sin. He took what we deserve and he nailed our sin to the cross. He rose from the grave. He's alive today. Our home is heaven. All the stuff on earth, the worst day on earth is the closest thing to hell that every Christian will ever experience. And when we get to heaven, we get to spend eternity celebrating our Savior in the company and fellowship of him. That gives us peace on this earth to endure whatever trial might be sitting in front of you today. This is a peace that's a reflection of the victory and the deliverance that we have in Christ. And when we repent of our sin, the war with God is over and peace is in its place. I mean, that's what we're promised, even back to the Old Testament. Remember Isaiah 9, 6? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of what? peace because that's what he does in fact even when the angels showed up announcing his presence on earth it says they said glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased that's what we're promised i mean jesus said this john fourteen twenty seven: peace i leave with you my peace i give to you not as the world gives do i give to you do not let your heart be troubled Neither let it be fearful. When Jesus says, come unto me all who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, I'll give you peace. That's what happens when we draw near to him. In fact, this peace is so abundant that verse 7 says of Philippians 4, it surpasses comprehension. I just love that. I mean, I know I'm the dumbest guy in the room already. But when God says, you're not going to be able to figure this out. And by the way, neither is the smartest guy in the room. I like that because I know that this is something that I don't have to worry about trying to figure the whole thing out. I just have to enjoy it. It's so comforting when God says, look, I'm going to give it to you. You're not going to understand all of it, but just take it. That's what he's saying. You get all the peace of God because you get all the forgiveness of sins. You get all the hope of heaven. You get all the grace that he applies to us day after day after day. You get all the encouragement of the saints as we gather together and we speak to one another and we breathe life into one another. Not to mention we have the Holy Spirit who's guarding us day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. And so you look at this and verse 7 then says, not only do we have the peace of God, but this peace does something. It says it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now, quickly, what does that mean? To guard our heart and our mind. Our heart, the seat of our emotion, our mind, the seat of our intellect. How does the peace of God protect our emotions and protect our mind against all the onslaught of the world? Well, first, you've got to know, as I said earlier, it's a supernatural peace. 
In Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. That this is something that we are incapable of manufacturing. I cannot wake up today, wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to really work on peace today. I can't do that. Any more than a tree wakes up and says, I'm really going to work on fruit today. The tree doesn't work on fruit. The tree works on sunlight and water. You take the right nutrients, you produce the right fruit. And the same for a Christian. I take in the right nutrients, the pure milk of the word. I devour the meat of the word with the Holy Spirit indwelling me. And I exhale prayer and worship. And guess what happens? Peace is growing. This same peace that is supernaturally being produced in us then repels sin. When I have that peace, that works to fight against any willingness in me to sin. Because if I am at peace with God, why would I want to then try to declare war on God to find comfort or temporary satisfaction or momentary distraction in something that is called sin? So ask yourself the question, will this action build peace with God or will it disrupt peace with God? It's a good question for discernment when you're thinking through a particular plan or idea or something that's in front of you. Will this action build peace with God or disrupt peace with God? Will this strengthen harmony with his spirit or will it put me off key in a sinful way? Will this further cement the truth of scripture in my heart or will it chisel it away? You see, when p- peace rules my heart, there's no room to flirt with sin. It repels sin. Not only that, but it also gives us focus. It clarifies our focus. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. This peace is God giving us something that stabilizes our heart and our minds. Not only does it guard our thoughts internally and our actions externally, but then last, it guards our relationships. Romans 12 says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Ephesians 4, 3 says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace, to guard this peace that He gives us. This is such a reassuring promise we have with God and such a simple set of things we have to do that activate and protect and continue the flow of this peace in our life. Be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do want our requests to be made known to you. And maybe sometimes that request is simply asking for forgiveness. Forgiveness that we've not run to you as rapidly as we should. That sometimes we get distracted and caught up in the things of this world, the distractions of this world, the promises of this world, and we lose sight of the fact that you are the king, the creator. And you open heaven's doors for us to approach your throne and speak to you directly. So Lord, as we grab hold of this promise of peace and we cling tightly to you, I ask that you would build into each of us such contentment, such hope, such joy, such peace that the world around us looks at us 
and sees a distinction, sees that you are doing something that transforms us. And may that continue until the day we see you face to face. In your name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.